Hello and welcome to another episode of the So Chat podcast with your host Amy Nettleton and myself Asif Chowdhury. Say hello Amy. Hello. Today our guest is Neil Goodrich, Corporate Performance and Planning Manager at Orbit Group. He describes himself as a loudmouth with a Twitter handle and lists weights and tweets things. As a housing professional, feminist, relapsed egg chaser, former chair of CIH Futures and has worked and or studied housing, specifically social housing for over 10 years now. He's worked primarily in performance and analytical roles within housing associations, but always with a keen personal interest in housing policy. So thanks for joining us, Neil, and it's great to welcome you as a guest on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Really delighted to be here. Okay, so we're going to kick off with a little icebreaker. So you're invited to a UK housing dinner party and you can invite three guests from sector, so within UK housing. So who are they and why? Yes, so yeah, first one would be Adam Clark because he he loves a decent beer. So I know if there's nothing good on the bar, he'll always have a few tinnies that he can bring along. Uh, second one is Alison Inman, just because she's a legend within the sector and can bring all the stories. So if it's a bit of a dull one, I know that we're gonna be wanting for uh, some conversation. And then the last one, a little bit left field, but I finally managed to meet this person in real life after speaking with him on Twitter for years. I and mean, it's Bridget Young, just because you can properly geek out on housing policy and refugee policy as well. Brilliant. Thank you, Neil. And we'll give uh, Adam, Alison and Bridget a name check in the show notes and when we post this out on socials in a couple of weeks. So Amy's got some questions when we get straight into the um, main topic of the podcast. So over to you, Amy. Thank you. And thanks, Neil. Um, it'd be remiss of me not to mention the fact that we've, this is our third start on this podcast today due to tech issues. So Neil is our most patient guest. So thank you so much. Um, and you're going to know these questions off the top of your heart. So so thank you. Um, and you've always been really active on everything um, UK housing. And, and I follow your Twitter account with interest because you managed to dissect policy and what's going on um and you talk like we would be talking in the pub which is so refreshing especially for somebody in your field and um somebody as as kind of young and upcoming um as you are in the sector so i feel that you've got your finger on the pulse and that you can really you just get it so i think if anyone's not following you on twitter and wants to understand what's going on in the world then then neil's your man um so firstly, let's just jump, jump straight in because we are talking about shared ownership and we are on SoChat. So what are your thoughts on shared ownership? And, and again, supplementary to that, would you buy it or would you even recommend it to your friends and family? So it's an interesting one because this is now version three, I've had a chance to think through some of my, <laughs> what my thoughts. I think shared ownership it, for the right person in the right place can be a good product. I think there are some genuine questions over some of the elements, particularly the old model of shared ownership, uh, which we can kind of go through. So if you are capital poor in terms of cash, but in a decent situation, wage rise within the limitations, because there is a household limit in terms of income that you can have for applying for shared ownership and living in insecure private rented accommodation particularly in very heated housing markets i think there is a very valid case for you looking at shared ownership because it will give you a security that you just won't have elsewhere um, within reason personally for me it's not a product that i would ever engage with 
um, partly because I am one of the, the lucky few within my age cohort to have bought. Um, I would like to say that I saved hard, worked diligently for years and, you know, have achieved the fruits of my labour. But being brutally honest, I had help to buy and a family relative died and I got part of an inheritance through that. And the brutal honesty is for across my age cohort and my friends and family. Everyone who has had help from family members has been able to buy. Everyone who's in this situation, which a large amount of us are, who couldn't, haven't. So I think definitely for some shared ownership could be worthwhile. For my kith and kin, I would advise against it um, purely on some of the elements related to increases post-purchase. I think the initial purchase point for shared ownership is actually really attractive. You're going in, you're taking a 25-35% share of property. It gets you out of a very heated private rented market in many areas, which is a good thing because it's just not working for the average punter. But when you're looking at RPI at 11.8%, as it was for June 2022, you've got issues on rent increases year on year. That can be astronomical if you don't have the income to back it up. And as we mentioned earlier, there is actually a salary income cap for people to purchase shared ownership in the first instance. So... Yes, it could work for people. No, I wouldn't advise people to go for it. And that's really interesting. And again, one of the reasons why I wanted you on the podcast and one of the reasons I think that Asif and I, you know, we want to get different views of the tenure, of the product, of, of what people think in housing, out of housing, people that are living in it. And and for yourself, like, you know, you you bought your home with help to buy. So you bought your home with an assisted product um, and that worked for you. Um, and, and that was a product that you felt comfortable um, in using because there aren't any of those, I suppose, hidden legacy fees or, or charges maybe down the line that, that shared ownership can throw um, and I suppose it's 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 the right thing to do to mention just here you know there is the changes in that with the new product coming down the line but I do echo your concerns around the inflationary rises especially with this new product if you're if you're going in in higher value areas at say 10%. Yeah, it can be significantly problematic. Obviously, we've also had some issues on service charge fees as well going up astronomically. Some of that's related to the cladding crisis and to building safety stuff. But you fundamentally have to appreciate you are a leaseholder as a shared owner. You know, you if you're living in a block of flats, you are going to be liable to some pretty steep charges potentially. I've got family who are shared owners. They've shown me some of the increases month on month. It is eye watering. So I think where shared ownership can work really well for people is if you are on an upward curve in terms of your career. So if you're buying at a low point at the beginning of your career, whatever it is, and you get to move up and grow within your role within the industry and frankly your pay. It can work really well because you can buy further shares as your capital increases. But if you are stagnant, if you have to go through a career change, if you are made redundant, you have to start again, you've got issues. It's a treadmill that you have to keep moving on. Yeah. And if not, you then have to exit. And that is part of my concerns. We've also got things about the old model in terms of repairs, liability, yeah. some of the rather silly um administrative administrative elements on it charging 50 quid for a letter of approval for have a pet for example not anymore but that was the case for some organizations asking for permission to redecorate not knocking down any walls why 
Um, again, not anymore. And some of these are standard leasehold T's and C's as opposed to shared ownership specific. But what you would have with shared ownership historically is all the pain of being an owner, none of the freedom. And that was probably one of the fundamental elements that I disagreed with with the product. Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and thank you for, for that. I, I I think, again, what I want to move on to as well to, to get your opinion on, because you are really active in, in this cohort and you were former CIH Futures Chair, um, which uh, that, that community has achieved great things, I think, and really given the CIH a bit of a... Um, a new view to maybe younger members that didn't want or didn't understand why they should be part of CIH and what their role was. So what what do you think as a sector we should be focusing on that we aren't? And, and what are, I mean, I know you're still involved in that community and the futures element of it and, you know, the, the kind of God, I am old. You like that, you know, the next generation of housing professionals that are going to change the world. Um, what are you? What are you guys worried about? It's, it's an interesting because I'm 35 this year, so I think that the, the still terminology young. still young, Neil. Still young. Young is a relevant term. <laughs> um, I, I think what is quite clear at the moment, and the sector needs to get it, its self sorted quite quickly, is twofold. One, we are not delivering in terms of new builds that we should be. Um, Homes England massively missed its targets for the last financial year, probably for reasons largely understandable in terms of impact on supply changes. You know, Brexit coming through. I appreciate the two Tory leadership hopefuls didn't want to talk about it and its impact on Dover this week. But there are supply, supply chain issues that have occurred. Covid has also had a massive impact on that with inflation pressures on uh, products, labour, parts, etc. We're also failing in terms of service delivery. You've had Clarion for the third time in the space of 12 months be served with a severe maladministration failure by the housing ombudsman. You've got the regulator of social housing kicking as much as it can currently in terms of it's about repairs, stupid, get yourselves in order. If you look at the sheer volume of complaints that go to the housing ombudsman, so this is stuff that's flown through internal complaints processes, it is majority repairs and yeah. condition of property. Um, those are big challenges. And I think without trying to sound too John Major, because that went well, um, it's about getting back to basics in terms of organisations and understanding do we need majorly complex structures to operate? Probably not. Do we need to go back and ensure that at the very basic, we are doing repairs as and when we should be and that people can get through to us and speak to someone they need to for assistance? Yes. Do we need to be maximising the amount of builds that we are delivering? Yes. I think those are the two things. Now, they can be quite contradictory in terms of approach. And certainly, I think for focus for a number of organisations, hasn't been where it needs to be because if it hasn't been on build it's been on acquire and you're seeing already with i can't remember the name of the two housing organizations but yet another g15 housing association is merging you know creating a 77,000 unit organization would i be doing that right now probably not but it's different people's priorities so i think fundamentally is get back to what we should be doing which is providing good quality services a safe warm and affordable home for people who are excluded from the market be it the private rented or home ownership that's our raison d'etre as a, as a sector then it's build as much of this blooming stuff as you can because yeah. both shelter then at fed and various others have noted we need ninety thousand additional social housing 
properties added per year for a decade just to meet the backlog. If you haven't noticed today, Joseph Roundtree Foundation has just released a really interesting report on the housing market, particularly on the private rented sector and how it isn't working for people. A direct consequence of our failure to build enough social rent housing has been the real heating up of that market alongside the home ownership market. Um, so, yeah, back to basics, build more, but do your damn services better. I think those are two main things. And do you think um, I can I can see this, this is like a Twitter conversation that I, I've seen. Um, uh, so and I often see that and, and this is what infuriates me sometimes. And I and I understand that it's getting the back to basics. I often see that, that a, a lot of um, commentators feel that it's either or we, we can't do both. So we can't be aggressively, not aggressively, but um, ambitiously developing because we need to develop. Like you've just said, we've got a massive, massive undersupply of homes. OK, so people um, there's a lot of commentary that goes, well, if you're focusing on development, you're not focusing here. Whereas actually those two core outputs of a, a housing association are surely just kind of core business and they can rub along very well alongside each other. Yeah, I, I, gen, I agree with that. I don't think it's neither or. I think what you need is robust governance and strong leadership to ensure that yeah. one doesn't supersede the other. I would argue they're interlinked. If you have a better and more efficient service delivery model, you have more cash to sweat, which means you can build more homes, which means you can get more cash in, which means you can invest more in your services, which means you can have a more efficient business model, which means you can invest more in homes, which means you can get more in. Um, I think cross subsidy has been over egged a little bit. I yeah. do think government and I would say this because, you know, good socialist me, but I do think government should put in more cash into capital grant. Yeah. I think. I mean, at the moment, the figures vary, but I think about 11% of cash that goes towards new developments is grant. So it's 89% that you've got to get from the private market. Yeah. And there are criticisms that maybe some housing associations who develop aren't sweating their assets as good as they could or as much as they could. But that is where there is the conflict because you need to ensure that you've got enough reserves knocking about to cover your initial liabilities but also to fund the service that you provide. One of the things, and uh, I think Serena Jones mentioned this on Twitter, that no one has really spoken about is five years ago, we had a 1% cut applied to social rents yeah. year on year. That has whacked out a large hole in business plans. Okay, yeah. And has probably indirectly, or at least exacerbated slightly, some of the issues we're seeing in repair services at the moment. It's not an excuse, but it is a fact of life that that funds that were going to be there haven't been. So people have pulled back accordingly. Without a doubt. And I think you hit, you hit a really interesting point and I, and I will move on. But I think there's a really interesting point there around that, you know, um, housing associations are you know the ones that are pro-developing and the, uh, the majority do develop now you know there's there's a, there's a few that, that don't but majority do so developing for all kinds of tenures like you just said there around 80 to 90 percent of that capital outlay is from private markets okay which is a very very different rule book to um capital grants so therefore you know by very virtue, again, you're you're changing one thing one end and then questioning why the results are out the other end very differently because we have to operate differently when we're getting 80% um, of our funding via private market. So 
it's around you know, you keep squeezing it at one end but wanting more um but then like you say we've still got to be operational businesses it's like it's like the kind of and I know you're a rugby man but it's like the kind of financial fair play rules in football isn't it you know you can't kind of keep squeezing and squeezing and then be like well why aren't you delivering and what's happened yeah yeah um, and then so move it like on on with that your take and commentary, and I said at the beginning of this podcast, is on housing policy. It's is really raw and clear and just to the point. It's for like we're just everyone that really you can just feel like you're just chatting to you. It's not there's no no filter, but not in a bad way. Like you, your tweets read like you're like yeah, I get it. Why do you think that's important? Why do you think that approach is important? And why do you think that so few are brave enough to do it? Thanks. I am a little bit lucky that I'm still relatively junior in my career <laughs> so I don't necessarily have the obligations potentially as I might do in terms of a way that I approach things will that ever change probably not but <laughs> I, I do have that luxury at the time I am fortunate that my employer and my um, direct managers and directors are supportive of what I do maybe not of all the swearing but certainly just in my general approach I think we, we have this issue where we're almost we like to have knowledge capture in the sector um, and we love jargon. I think that the, the joke that I always use is that I work for an RP, but technically it's a HA, but it's also an RSL. But everyone knows this of the council in like out of sector. I'm like, what the does that mean? You can swear, Neil. You can swear. Good. You're on. You're like literally. I'm surprised I've not sworn yet. So you're good. Brilliant. I mean, yeah, people, people don't know. I, I have family who live in social housing okay extended family that lived there and you know they it's a different world so where we come to these conversations why hide behind bluster and business speak people aren't interested you look at the people who have done the most to change the sector in the last 12 months daniel hewitt and quadro okay no pretense gone in shown it as it is not hiding behind anything because they have no nothing to hide behind because no they're out of sector. No, exactly that. One lad went through an incredibly time personally, not helped by his housing association and sought to make a difference just by being open and honest with people. Mm. I think half of the reason why we do what we do in terms of the language that we use is we're afraid of openness and transparency. And that's not ever a place that I can be in. It's not how I operate and it's not who I'm going to be. It doesn't make me special. It's just my personal values. And I think we hide behind the fact that just because we provide a public good, that we are somehow innately good. And that's the public good is the end product. How we go about things that are own personal choice and the values that we apply to the, the organisations we work in. And I think that's right. And I'm going to bring Asif in here a minute because this is like one of the things I suppose that you live and breathe by Asif, isn't it? That when you see somebody, especially on socials and their communication methods and how they are, they're the same person when you bump into them in the bar and, and you're having the same kind of conversation and you can build that relationship and rapport um, on both platforms. I think it's absolutely right. I think it's important. You have to be your authentic self. That's the whole point of when you're out there on social you are and if you're not on social you still got to be your authentic self when you're at work i don't think there's any difference and uh, it becomes quite difficult to pretend to be somebody else uh, the longer you go into your career how long can you pretend you know the real you is going to come out at some point so i think you you've got to within the realms of the job that you do and the 
sector you work in and things like that are all important because they give you guidelines of how to operate but certainly you definitely got to um uh, be yourself and i think with every sector there's outspoken people within that and i think you know um as different generations come through into not just housing but any sector you are going to get total different viewpoint and perspective that is completely fresh and with that becomes it's going to bring its own challenges for the individuals themselves but also the longer term members of the sector who've been in the job for quite a number of years but it's not going to it's not going to do any harm challenge has never done any harm and that's that's the way change comes about in most instances absolutely so my final question neil how are the generations of the future going to want to live? And do you still think it's going to be home ownership at all costs? Genuinely, we are a country that prefers home ownership as a general model. Um, certainly, where you look at the private rented sectors at the moment in high demand areas, you can see why. Um, it, it's not a particularly pleasant or secure experience. Um, there's a really good a paper called the housing theory of everything which kind of details the impact of insecure housing not just in terms of involvement in particular tenure but on your work your health your longevity your wealth accumulation etc um, it is fundamental to who we are so i think where the issue is that most of us appreciate that they might not be able to afford it and that is a real policy conundrum we have for years operated as a country that has always believed that our own individual house prices will increase and that'll be great for us but somehow it remain affordable for our kids well sorry lads but we're hitting that tipping point you had i mean it was at the end of his days as a prime minister but you had the, the, the promise of this country saying let's have a 50-year mortgage <laughs> no <laughs> okay like <laughs> yes it will make you, your general payments short lower on a month by month but ultimately you're paying out more and you're in debt for a long period of time other countries do have it where you can inherit a mortgage japan's one of them at least it used to be certain instances in switzerland as well is that somewhere where we want to go down to no what we need is a housing market that works for the people in the way that they need at that particular time social rent isn't bad in and of itself private rent isn't bad in and of itself even shared ownership in certain circumstances isn't bad in and of itself. Same for home ownership. The problem is affordability and accessibility. And we have a real issue there. This The um, report that Joseph, Round, Joseph Roundtree Foundation released today, 67% of the 25 to 34 year olds at ours didn't think they'd be able to afford to purchase a home. OK, that's shocking. I don't think when I was a kid, there was ever a doubt in my mind that I might be able to buy I mean, when I heard of these things called bills and that I had to pay them, that kind of annoyed me a little bit. Because I was like, what? But, you know, it was it was always a dream for, for some of us. It is only going to remain a dream. And that is down most frustratingly of all to a policy decision. We are here because successive governments have chosen short term political gain over long term good policy decision making. There's stuff that we can do, such as liberalising planning. We can increase the volume of social housing that is built those will help it's not the be all and end all you can do stuff in the mortgage market you can make credit relatively accessible but again inflation rpi 11.8 there is going to be massive pressure on the bank of england to further increase their basic interest rates which is going to make credit very very expensive 
and we've got used to cheap credit in this country. Absolutely. And I think just before I, I pass to Asif to kind of close, I think that's really important because actually like we all talk about, oh, you know, like inflation and interest rates rising, like we know what that feels like. We haven't got a clue what that feels like. And by we, I mean, you know, well, I'm I'm early 40s, never, ever never experienced it in in a generation and I think I think this is the problem that we're we're looking at a a kind of economic infrastructure and thinking that we potentially even know how bad it's going to get but have no former knowledge of what actually pulling your belt in and kind of restricting yourself and actually living to means because actually the generations for so many decades now have been used to fast credit easy credit getting things now not saving up and waiting and I think that that is um, a a big thing coming down the line and equally we only have to look at and when we're recording this we don't know whether it's um, Rishi or Liz coming in to be the next PM but interestingly you've got very different sides of a coin there you've got Rishi who knows his economics you know whatever you think of him he knows his he knows his economic policy and he knows that how to get out of this mess Whereas actually on the other side of the coin, it's lowering interest rates, keeping in it a lot longer. So it's going to be a real interesting time ahead and and what that means for people. And there are so many people that this is hitting and and hurting already. And I don't think we've even started to see it yet. I think I agree with you and a bit of a political point here, but I'll make it. I think I'm incredibly scared if Liz Truss gets in because one of the chief economic advisors is Patrick Minford, who, in my opinion, is a Muppet Um, and just dubious approach to economics. Now, it's purely a personal opinion. Please don't lie on me, mate. But (laughs) I am scared that someone openly says that that would be like me going to you and saying I'm building a new business. My chief advisor is the cookie monster. Okay. It's like it's problematic. Yeah. And I think if there's one thing, you know, if there's one thing that, um, you know, out of those two that that Rishi is strong on, it's economic policy. He understands how inflations work. He understands how markets work. So um, and I just think it's a very interesting landscape. And we could and probably what would be good, actually, from your policy point of view is maybe to have a, a supplemental chat without tech issues, maybe in six months time when we've got that established and then we get our next housing minister, because the one we've got at the moment isn't going to stick around, is he? So and we might even see some changes then to um, the current shared ownership model, the policy and what that means as well in terms of our offering as, as providers. So. Um, thank you for from me for entertaining my questions and I'm going to just hand back to Asif to kind of close us down so thank you Neil. That's going to be um, I, I think hopefully we'll get to host later this year uh, an in-person search panel and uh, Neil we're going to get you on there's going to be some fireworks on this panel so definitely Ooh, not looking to create an echo chamber That'll, that'll be good. That'll be an interesting one. But genuinely, Neil, it's been a fantastic interview and I'm sure the SoChat listeners are going to enjoy it and um, agree, disagree with some political opinions in there and uh, what have you. But we knew you were going to be outspoken before we brought you on. So thank you for living up to your authentic self. Um, and we'll share your contact details in the show notes for anyone who wants to follow Neil or berate him either way. Um, I'm sure you'll get some interesting Twitter exchanges. Uh, and we look forward to seeing those on the airwaves.
You'll find this podcast on Spotify, Apple, and on our website, sochat.co.uk. Please do leave a rating and review if you do listen, and you can follow us on Twitter at Sochat Hour. So, Neil, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, thank you very much. You. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. See you guys. Cheers. Bye. Bye.